Today in the garage, we have the one and only Jessica Greenwood. After exposure to the justice system, addictions, mental health issues, and loss, Jessica quickly learned that without an advocate by people's side, they were left defenseless. Jessica has earned standing as a powerful defender of her clients and strongly believes in the presumption of innocence and the client's right to have their voice heard. Whether you're driving your Subaru through and through, shredding your Rickenbacker, or prepping a Form 48, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Paul. I'm excited to be here um, because it's an area that I really envy those that practice in. It takes an individual look at clients and it takes a lot of work to do to help out individuals. How do you do it? Well, I agree with you that uh, it definitely takes uh, a special skill set, but it's one that anyone can learn. And I think that would be my message to young lawyers or aspiring lawyers who want to work with vulnerable clients. This isn't some special skill set that's innate. It's something that you develop over time. And you have to have a passion for enabling people to have their own voice and their own story and be able to advocate for them. And so it's both being able to communicate with clients and break down difficult, complex legal concepts into digestible bites and be able to get instructions based on your explanations, and then also to empower clients to have their voice and allow them to be heard. Because I find what happens in our justice system is as lawyers, we think we know best and we disenfranchise clients from having their own experience. It's one of the worst things that we do. And I guess that fits within the word vulnerable. So recently I read a case of Barker and I have the site for it, 2020 ONSC 3746. Um, it was interesting to me because it was a civil case and the Crown and the psychiatrists were found liable in that case by Superior Court Justice. Um, they had used this part of their programs, a couple of interesting unheard of things that I can't believe existed, defense disruptive therapy and total encounter capsule. When you talk about vulnerable, uh, what occurred there uh, was shocking to me. Uh, whether putting people in a windowless cell while they're nude, they had to share a toilet, they weren't allowed to use showers, they were forced to a strict diet of hallucinogenic drugs and liquids. Uh, they also used the motivation atti attitude participation program. These things were shocking. And um, when you talk about helping people and give the individuals a voice. How would you suggest a young lawyer who's interested or has their first client walk into their office that may need their help? How, how do you suggest they approach that? Well, don't discount the client's story. The client may be unwell. They may be tangential. They may tell you all kinds of facts that are totally irrelevant to your legal analysis. But it doesn't mean that contained within that version of events, there isn't something that's important to their case. So you have to, you have to give clients the patience and the room to tell you their story. 
And you may not be able to have that two and a half hour conversation every time, but you need to have it once. That's what a good lawyer does. They develop rapport with the clients. They give the clients the space to tell the story. They try to get out from the clients facts that might help the case and then go from there to start explaining what the options are. How do you build that bridge of trust so you can understand who the individual is, what their background is? What my approach is when I'm working with clients who are unwell or have mental health issues is to just try to empathize with their position, even if I don't agree with it. And over the years, what I've had to do is just strip away all my stereotypes and paternalistic tendencies and thinking that I would know what was best. And I started, what I noticed about myself is I actually, when I really tried to do that and reflect on it, I started speaking to clients in a different way. I say to clients, what do the police say that you did? And how did you come in contact with the police? Tell me about that. Do you have a diagnosis? What does the doctor say your diagnosis is? You don't have to agree with it, but what did the doctor tell you? And how did it come to be that you were there with the doctor? I don't start with, uh, I try not to start my questions from a place of judgment, whether I'm judging the client about their situation, about whether or not they take medication, or about why they came into contact with the justice system. I try to remove all that judgment so they feel safe enough to build that bridge of trust and to tell me things. If you start out by speaking to a client in a way that lets them know that you already think something about them, they can pick up on that very easily. And if they're paranoid or untrusting to begin with, then you're already at a disadvantage. So I'm sure there are times where you have the luxury of being able to meet clients in your office. And I'm not sure if that is the majority of the time or the minority of the time. How do you approach clients given the setting that they may be in, whether they're incarcerated in a hospital or able to navigate to your office? Pre-COVID, I always like to meet with clients in person. I like clients to see me, see that I've put in the effort to come and visit them and see them in advance of any hearing. COVID has affected that and we've, we've all had to make some changes to the way that we practice. I've been seeing clients now over video conference for the most part and by telephone. Uh, a lot of clients have adjusted to that really well and they've ad kind of adapted, I guess you could say. But you have to look at each situation and see what's going to be safest for you and safest for the client. There's definitely been times where I've had clients that were so agitated and unwell, it wasn't, it wasn't okay to go and see them. They were in lock seclusion or what have you. And, and it was more a situation where I was advocating uh, with the hospital or with the jail for their own safety. Um, I've also had situations where clients were so unwell, I was the only person that they would speak to, and I was able to help in some ways. But really, that comes on a case-by-case -case basis and based on your own comfort level and what you're prepared to do. What was your first case like? Oh, <laughs> 15 years ago. <laughs> I started out at the legal aid clinic in uh, Windsor when I was in law school, and... Um, 
the first trial, the very first trial I ever did was a domestic trial for a lady who was very unwell. She was, uh, she was definitely having some mental health issues and had a breakdown with her boyfriend. And we set a trial date and, uh, I ran a self-defense defense, although I didn't really understand what I was doing at the time. And uh, I think the judge felt bad for me, so he acquitted her. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure that it, it, it has to do with what was on the record and what the facts were. Uh, but how did you gain the trust of that client, and how did that, try and, that client fare during the trial process? Because the process can be tough on individuals when they are well, and, and even tougher in those that are not well. Agreed. I, I think that back then when I first started doing trials, I cared more about how I felt about the case and how I did in court than how the client felt. But uh, as you learn to detach yourself from your own experience in court, you care more and more about the client's experience. And uh, in my preparation notes, I actually made a note about that, that I wanted to talk about how as lawyers, we need to think more about the client's experience and less about our experience because this process really isn't about us. And for the most part, a lot of the times in our venting and our peer support, we talk about how we felt, how the judge treated us, how the Crown treated us. But what I've noticed is that in many cases, many trials, no one even says hi to the accused. How, how does that person feel? It's their trial. They've paid me a lot of money or, or not, but if they did, they've paid a lot of money to be here. It's their day. They, this is really important to them. It might be the most important thing they do in their whole life is try to exonerate themselves. And yet I'm upset that the judge didn't smile at me. Who cares? We need to, we need to change our perspective on that. We need to have a paradigm shift if we want to see real change in the justice system is how are we treating the accused and witnesses for that matter, witnesses, victims. I mean, we all have our stories about judges who yell at us, yell at, at victims and witnesses, at the accused. That's, there's just no place for that anymore. There should not be a place for that. And I, I, I don't know how to get to a point where everybody who walks into the courtroom no matter what uh, uh, gatekeeper they're representative for or what place uh, they, they, role they, 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 they take, there has to be some dignity. They have to feel as if the integrity of the system provides them with dignity. How would you suggest we get there? Well, <laughs> no easy answers uh, just roll off my tongue. But what I can say uh, from my own experience is that Everything is personal and you can make a big difference in how people feel about the way they were treated in the system by looking at it that way, that if you are kind and you approach the situation with integrity and dignity and you treat everyone else in the system in that way, it automatically raises the level in the room. And so you see some judges who I think are the positive examples and the leaders in this regard, they walk in in the morning and they say, good morning, Mr. So-and-so. Yes, I remember you from last week. You're looking, uh, you're looking better today. How are you feeling? And that's 
sort of more of the approach that happens in mental health court. And it can be really positive when the accused, the clients think that they think that the court cares about them and cares about their case and the outcome. And it's in some cases causes clients to have a lot more accountability when they come to court. They respect the court more because the court respected them. And so if you also play a positive role in that process and you are a leader in that way, that can really help. Uh, I want to bring you back, if I can, I, I, I've digressed, but I want to bring you back to uh, your clients and uh, what steps you take for the individuals that are in the system. Uh, how do you try to get them diverted out of that system prior to any trial? Because I imagine that's a big part of the practice. Mental health diversion is definitely one of the best aspects of the criminal justice system when it works. And it's a great tool to get people diverted out of the system without any mark against them so that they can proceed. However, there are some limitations to mental health diversion. Not all offenses can be diverted, which is unfortunate because from my perspective, Crown should have the discretion to divert any offense. We all know that there can be overcharging by the police and what the offense is doesn't always matter if the facts are are so um, minimal that it might warrant diversion. So there's that. It depends on the kind of offense. It also depends on the client's wishes. If the client has, uh, has the view that they don't want to participate in some kind of therapeutic process, and depending on what jurisdiction you're in, mental health diversion in Toronto doesn't require an admission of wrongdoing. Other jurisdictions require that, and not every client will admit that they did something wrong just to get into the diversion program. Clients also have to agree to any therapy or medication, uh, anything that's going to be required to participate in the program, they have to agree to that and they don't always agree. Another ethical issue that comes up uh, when you're dealing with diversion is your client may be offered diversion and it may be the best outcome. It's going to be the most affordable for them. It's uh, going to be a guaranteed result but you know there's a triable issue with the case, or maybe the Crown can't prove it at all. And so for me, the, uh, the progression is that the Crown has to be able to prove the case before I'll agree to diversion. Uh, they have to have RPC, and if they don't, I want to I explore that first and try to get it withdrawn without the client having to do anything. And so I, I still think you have to approach the case with a critical lens, even if the client's being offered diversion. Our system doesn't work that quick. And I know how it is a dark cloud for anybody who's charged with a criminal offense uh, to carry with them over from the beginning to the end of uh, their time in the process. How do you assist clients that uh, may be suffering from some mental health issues uh, to get through um, the several months or, or years uh, that it will take for them uh, um, if there is a triable issue or how do you help them get through it? Cause it's gotta be devastating to them. One of the best things that uh, worked for me was to have tools where I could assist clients and connect them to resources in the community. I don't pretend to know everything about what's out there, 
but I definitely had a Rolodex, an electronic uh, uh, setup where I kept all my contacts so that I could refer people to supports in the community. And clients have always fared better when they had someone else to help chaperone them through the process. They, they need someone else who can be an advocate in other areas of their life. For example, maybe they were in custody. I was able to get them out on bail, but they didn't have an apartment and they needed to get housing. So I connected them with a housing worker who got them on the list to get an apartment. And that person helped connect them with someone who could help them get on financial supports. And maybe they needed the public guardian and trustee and maybe they needed help accessing other services and all doing all of those things and helping a client get connected and telling them that that sort of connection and those resources will help them gain stability that help them survive this process and be able to um, do well in a trial and so I just explained it to the client that it's not it's not just to help them it also helps their case if they're stable and doing well I know it's not social work, but you're socially conscious of all the things that are needed for the particular client. Um, what kind of dedication does that take? I, I, there's, you know, there's lawyers out there that they do what's necessary and then, you know, they might have a volume practice and not have the extra time. It, 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 it's just, I know that, and I've seen people and in the occasional cases that I've had where you have to put a medical team together for a client, um, it, it, you're not always compensated for that. How do you make it work while you're trying to earn a fair living for yourself? So there's lots to unpack there. <laughs> but um, I think for me, what was most important is making sure that clients were well. And I knew that some of the social work aspect of what I was doing was not going to be paid. Uh, I don't recommend that you go down a path of doing all kinds of work for free all the time. It's on a case-by-case -case basis, but sometimes you know it's really necessary. And the outcome of the case is going to be determined by whether or not you have helped that person get well and, and get what they needed. And so I, I always try to at least connect the client to the resources. And if they choose to take that, uh, take those resources and use them to their advantage, then that's great. And if not, then we're going to proceed uh, as best we can. So you're right. You don't always get paid for that work but it's really important. Okay, I'm gonna try some rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, focused on the practice itself. Uh, client comes in uh, and you perceive that they have a mental health issue. How do you address it? When they may seem to the world, their family, that they have no issue. How do you bring that up? How a do you deal with it? A lot of clients uh, either don't want to admit that they have a mental health issue because they're concerned about the stigma or they're in denial themselves. But I usually ask them, I, I ask them a series of questions that allow me to understand where they're coming from and assess if they're having paranoid thoughts or their thoughts are delusional or unreasonable. One thing that you have to assess in, assess in criminal law is whether or not the person's fit to stand trial. And, 
fit to give you instructions. We have to, as lawyers, be instructed to do what we do. So if I think that fitness is an issue, then that's something that I, I definitely want to address. But it, it isn't always. It's just some clients are unwell, and some will admit that, and others won't. And it kind of depends. It depends on whether or not you're getting instructions. If you're not, then you have to deal with it. If you're getting instructions, then it doesn't really matter how unwell the person is. As unfortunate as that is, we're not in a situation, we're not in a role where it's our job to interfere with the client's healthcare concerns. If they have capacity, the Healthcare Consent Act says that they are presumed to have capacity and they're presumed to be fit under the criminal code. It's interesting because most people don't understand. Um, and, and when I talk about most people, I, I, it's not only the public, but generally lawyers don't understand that people have the right to be unwell. That's hard to understand. And it's the hardest for families because families come to you and they're expressing genuine love and concern for their family member who is decompensating. And the families often know that this is a hallmark of something to come. And there, there are warning signs and they don't want the person to hurt themselves or someone else. And that is a really unfortunate situation to be in. But despite that, uh, despite how you may, you may too sympathize with the family, the client's the client and they get to make the call. And this is what our case law tells us and what the law says, that clients have the right to make bad decisions, even decisions against their own interest. It's a very unfortunate position to be in as a lawyer. It's a tough ethical uh, position to be in because you owe certain duties and those duties are to the client. And sometimes the duties to the client may conflict with the duties to the court. Can you give us examples where you have these hard decisions that you have to make, but you're guided by your ethics? So one of the clearest examples where I feel there's a conflict in the rules of professional conduct and uh, in our ethical obligations to our client is the issue of fitness. So as counsel, if you uh, feel your client is unfit and cannot provide instructions, you can't take it upon yourself to act in the case without instructions and you know the client's unwell. So you have the obligation to raise the issue of fitness. But in raising that, you're doing something that is against the client's interest in some ways. It's adverse to the client's interest. But you, you owe that duty to the court to raise that issue. And so for me, I've always struggled with the duty of confidentiality and the duty of loyalty to the client to be the zealous advocate for them, but yet raised to the court that they weren't able to give me proper instructions. So the way that I've dealt with that conundrum is I express to the Crown that I'm unable to get instructions, and I ask the Crown to raise the issue of fitness. Have you found that they've been cooperative in doing so? In mental health court, Yes. Yeah. That's generally, that's generally my experience. And, and it's important for young lawyers to understand that is that although we have an adversary system, the Crowns also have an obligation um, to ensure if somebody is not fit that they are to bring an application. Absolutely agree with that. It's, a, it's an awkward position to be in to raise the issue of fitness as well because clients may not want that issue to be raised 
And then for you as their advocate, they also feel like you're selling them out in court. And so that doesn't help with the trusting rapport and relationship that you need to work with the client, which is another reason why I prefer that the Crown raise it. Have you had a, a, a case or, or a situation where a client, because of their uh, mental health issue or they become very unwell, where they start to lose trust in you or they don't want your assistance anymore? Um, and, and how do you deal with that? Uh, it happens all the time. It's, pre- it's pretty common. Uh, it depends. If they're unwell and they are going to go and receive some treatment, and I've known them for a long time and this is a cycle, then I wouldn't get off the record. But if it's a client who's maybe unwell but fit, that's their choice and it's not personal. And I do everything I can to make sure that their case is not adversely affected. So I try to refer them to other lawyers that I know could take the case and do a good job. Sometimes I'll give them the name and number of other lawyers or I'll call the other lawyer and ask them to come and meet the client at court. And I make sure that they're set up. So whatever they they need, they can hopefully move the case along. And, and so sometimes that'll mean calling legal aid, helping them facilitate a change of solicitor application, and then getting off the record. You discuss our community and your ability to reach out to others to potentially help out a client should you need to walk away or, or be forced to walk away. Um, do you have your own uh, group of mentors that you look up to? I know that there are a number of people that look up to you and and call you. Um, how does that work? Because I remember entering practice terrified. Um, I it was a poor economy. I had to open up on my own, and I, and I was fearful every day, and wanted to make sure I was uh, fulfilling my duties to the client. Um, I didn't know to look out to people. Is this something that's normal in uh, this area of the law? I would say that the defense, the mental health defense practice, is pretty small. And when I was coming up, I looked up very much to Ted Kelly, who's now Justice Kelly. And he was uh, very encouraging and uh, gave me a lot of great advice over the years. I've also had really great experiences with uh, many other counsel who do this kind of work um, in the defense bar, but also crowns. I've learned, I've learned a lot from the mental health crowns. And um, being able to speak at events and listening to doctors and listening to other lawyers there's so many resources out there. So I, I do agree that when you run into an ethical issue or you have a difficult client and you need advice, reach out. But there's many groups. Um, the Criminal Lawyers Association has a mental health group with uh, an inquiries email that you can send inquiries to the committee. And, uh, and then there's Lambda and uh, several others. And just so many resources online through CMHA and through CAMH. Um, there's no shortage of information out there. What would, advice would you give to a young lawyer who was uh, involving uh, or had, had their first case involving someone with mental health disorder? If you can break it down to three or four bullet points that you would like to convey to give them confidence that they can do it. I think that anyone can do these type of cases, but my, my bullet points would be learn this area of the law, 
take a look at section 672, understand what that section means, know the difference between fitness, which is how the person is doing right now versus NCR, how the person was at the time and their mental state at the time. Those are two different concepts with two different sets of implications. And really, if you're going to do this kind of case, you have to delve into these various issues and try to understand them. Have a mentor if you, if you want to do this area but are finding it difficult or are struggling with clients. And really take the time and patience with the clients to give them the space that they need so that you can develop a positive relationship with them. And lastly, have empathy. You may not agree with the client. You may not agree with their story. You may not think that the government implanted a chip in their brain and is listening to the conversation right now, but you can have empathy for the client that they feel that way. That is, that is a completely distressing experience to feel like everyone is against you. And you have to be the person that says, I'm sorry that you're having that. I'm sorry that that's happening to you right now but I'm here and I'm going to help you with your case. This is the problem that I can help you with. And be clear about what the boundaries are, what you can help with and what you can't help with. And whether you agree or not, you can empathize. There's been a number of cases over my career and I'm sure um, over decades where our law has developed, uh, where we start to understand uh, the importance of recognizing individuals that have uh, mental health issues and how it affects their behavior and how we deal with them in the criminal justice system. I'm not sure if this progression has completely uh, moved forward in such a way that the public understands it. Do you have a message for the public? Uh, should m members of the public be listening to this broadcast who are not lawyers or are not trained in the law so that they can understand how important this area of the law and protecting the vulnerable is in a democracy. Well, how we treat our most vulnerable is a real measure of our, our civility in a society. And I, I think that any message I would say is that mental health issues and mental illness don't equal dangerousness. Uh, we, as criminal lawyers and as defense lawyers, we know that crime can happen in all kinds of different situations. And many times it's just unfortunate circumstances that lead to situations where people are violent or are hurt. So one of the, one of the things I see is that the stigma around mental illness still exists in the justice system. And uh, it's largely unfair because anyone could get themselves in a situation where they're involved in the justice system. But I guess in addition to that is, is just the way that we, being an adversary system and the way that things operate in court, it's not user-friendly. There are a lot of barriers to being able to access uh, justice. And if you're well and you have a lawyer, it, it's much easier. And a lot of what I see is that the person who wins in court is the person who has the most resources. I understand that uh, recently you're changing the area of practice slightly. Can you share that with the audience? I'm uh, very excited. I joined a firm after many years of operating my own uh, defense practice. And so while it was 
sad to say goodbye to my name on the door. I'm very happy to be in at Spring Law with a wonderful group of lawyers, uh, an all-female firm and a female founder, Lisa Stam. And uh, everyone has been amazing and great. And they pulled me over to help with employment law litigation and workplace litigation. Uh, and I'm working with a lot of people and employers who are facing mental health issues in their workplace or uh, needing to accommodate mental health issues and how all of that plays out. Uh, and also uh, the way that criminality and uh, regulatory proceedings affect employment law areas. So really excited to be doing that and um, I'm really enjoying it. Well, I thank you for joining us today. Um, I do want to ask if you could put a plug in also for WELL, because um, I think that it is such a groundbreaking organization for people practicing criminal law. Absolutely. So my uh, two Crown colleagues and uh, one other defense colleague and I came together to really try to address a need in the defense bar to bring women together from both sides. Uh, we see that women are often the defense lawyers, women are getting together and the crowns are getting together and they go to crown school, but we needed something where uh, both sides were going to come together. And so the purpose of WELL was to be both a networking aspect where we would drink some wine, have some nice canapes, and then also have an educational aspect and component. And so as a result of COVID, we've been put on hold for right now, but we will be resuming as soon as uh, Verity, which is the space where we hold the events, reopens. Hopefully that will be in the fall, and if not, in 2021. And we have an amazing program. It's been uh, accredited for CPD credit. We've got a law pro risk rebate if you're defense counsel for attending each one of our sessions. They're low cost. Uh, we fundraise a lot of money uh, to cover the costs. And uh, last year, we, we covered the costs on our own uh, and, uh, and then just charged a nominal amount. So we, we try to offer something that's very cost effective and brings women together. And it's been, it's been really incredible to see the connections that have been made. If anyone wanted further information about how to participate in a well event, how do they find that? Uh, you can definitely email me. I'm jgreenwood at springlaw.ca, or you can check out our website, which is coming soon, and it'll, uh, email me, and our website's going up very soon. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout-out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sefna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.